Street. I went to Wall Street to get seriously rich, but I didn't get rich. Hollywood Boulevard. I went to Hollywood to be a movie mogul. I didn't become a movie mogul. Washington, D.C. The president and Mrs. Ford have invited us down to Palm Springs. He's been I there. I the entertainment business. Done and that. Being hired by a company called Carol Co. Pictures. And that. the night before Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. And just about everything else you can imagine. I thought of myself as somebody who was a double agent. He knew a lot of famous My people. experience with Orson Welles. How can you possibly have hang out with that low-life Frank Sinatra. And now he's talking. As a result of that, I was invited to some fancy dinner. This is the podcast, Who the F*** is Roger Smith? But my real goal was to have an interesting life surrounded by interesting people, and at that, I succeeded beyond my expectations. On this episode, Roger actually tries to pick up a check, and it almost backfires. His dad always drove Oldsmobiles, but wasn't great at saving money. We also talk large Christmas trees for Jews, and not everyone loves George Soros. But we begin back in the Hamptons, where Roger, surprise, is a guest of some swells, nice ones. The people who I was staying with in Southampton who had an incredible place on Oxpasture Road, and they were, they were both very rich, and unlike most very rich people, very generous. You never saw a check, it was always whisked away. And so I said, you know, I don't want to be his guest of this. I want, to, I want to be the host. So I go up to the owner of the restaurant before and I slip in my Amex card and I said, look, do not bring a t- check to the table. Mr. Manchel will always take it. Just say it's been taken care of and leave it at that. And he said, well, I have to warn you, Ambassador Manchel. I said, Ambassador Manchel, he only got the nomination 20 minutes ago. He's already <laughs> ambassador. <laughs> He said, has, has ordered a most unusual red wine. I, said, I don't care. Whatever it is. That was actually nice. That, I, that's a good maitre d'. Yes, exactly. He'd warn me, yes, because <laughs> it was a $750 magnum. And that's, if we convert that to today's money, that's $4,000. Yeah. Wow. Magnum of 1945 Cheval Blanc. Okay. And comes to the table, I sort of gulp hard. And I think, you know, he never gets a check here. They just spill him directly and his secretary pays it. He'll never know right. that I was the host. Right. He said, well, if I were a true gentleman, that would be ideal to do a good thing without getting any credit. My second thought, fuck that. <laughs> so I say, Lauren, don't say a word. Don't fight me. It's, it's a done deal. But tonight's dinner is my... I'm the host. And there were four of us. Um, I'm friends to this day with the girl I was going out with then, who's married now to one of the most powerful lawyers in New York. Anyway, Herb Wachtel, Wachtel Lipton. Yeah. So anyway, uh, and I'm a little, when they literally wheel the thing, it's on a cradle, uh, this incredible bottle. And so I'm thinking, well, he's not going to even know that I was the host. So I, so, I, so I say, Warren, I don't want you to say a word against it. It's my, my turn, and this is a special occasion. He said, well, no, 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 no. And finally he says, well, obviously I wouldn't have ordered such a wine if I thought it was going to be someone else's guest. And so he says, why don't you be the host for dinner and I'll be the host for the wine? My girlfriend then said, the definition of a nanosecond was how long it took you to say yes. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about rich people? We're talking about money and how people 
make it, spend it, and in some people's cases, not mine, save it. So listeners of the podcast don't know, most of the people you know have a few bucks. Yes, and it's interesting. I was accused by my wife when we first were married. She said, why is it that all the people you know seem to be rich? And I said, well, first of all, I was making my living on Wall Street managing the money of very rich people. So both my bosses and my clients were, by definition, rich people. Then I went into the movie business in which the successful people in it were definitely rich. The rest of them were people devoted to getting rich, like me, um, some more successful than others. Or presented themselves as or, being rich. Or presented rich. themselves yeah. as, as rich, yes, exactly. That's a good point. So there has always been an affinity with money. Now, I grew up in a family that was not rich. We were, as my mother would call it, well-to-do. We, upper middle class? Upper middle class. I and my father was earning $40,000 a year in the 1950s when that was a big salary. Right. Yeah. I remember when I was applying for, for Harvard, I was told I could, I could apply for a scholarship because my grades were so good. And they said, oh, well, I just looked at your father's income. That, that Those days, you couldn't get a scholarship if you earned more than 15000 a year. That was the, the cutoff point. Wow. Yeah, it was a different economy. So anyway, uh, I, but my father managed, I think there wasn't a single year of his life when he didn't spend more than he earned. He was never a saver. He liked to, he liked to live, he liked us to live well. It was mostly for him and my mother, less for me and my sister. But Cadillac man? No, he was very much an Oldsmobile man. He thought Cadillacs were showy. Oh, at one point we had a Packard, which I really loved. Yeah. yeah. That was my first car. Olds 88 or 98? Uh, it was before the old. So like a holiday or a. I forget what the model yeah, was. There, there, right. there was the upper, upper end. Old. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think it was. He didn't like Buicks. He thought they were stodgy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he said he only liked General Motors cars because they weighed more pound <laughs> for pound than, than, than Ford or Chrysler. Okay. It always bothers me to think about the fact that I can probably do four to six uninterrupted hours on things my father said or did. And if he were alive and someone said, tell me something interesting your son said, he'd be dumbfounded. He would have no possible thing, though I remember very much at age 12 sitting at the dining table and I spouted some recently learned fact. He said, son, that is what we call trivia. I said, dad, you call anything trivia that's something I know and you don't. <laughs> so I would, I would always try to get in the last word, but never, not always succeed. Did he live to see your success? Oh, yes. Uh -huh. Since he was a social climbing snob, he loved it when I was earning $8,000 a year at Wood Struthers and Winthrop as a junior analyst because it was oak paneled, courier and I have prints, it was wasp. You know, the firm had been started in 1844. He thought that was wonderful thing. He didn't like Warner as much because those were kind of showy, show business Jews. And he, though Jewish, very much downplayed his being Jewish. And he was blonde, blue-eyed, named Smith and the son of a, of a naval, career naval officer. So he didn't have the normal background that you would associate with, with being Jewish. And also growing up in the Midwest, mostly, we grew up in a world where anywhere between 80 and 90% of the people we knew were, were Christians. I went, to, I went to Christian summer camp for years on end, and I can sing to this day 
endless Protestant hymns. Yeah. <laughs> the old rugged cross, bringing in the sheaves, I'll spare you the singing. Yes, thanks. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and it was also, someone once said, well, what did being Jewish mean to you? I said, what it meant to me is we ate funny foods on Sunday morning. We would go, my father would go to downtown because he had to find some delicatessen that, that still had the, the, the right kind of bagels and the right kind of locks and so forth. But other than that, pretty much the same. It, we, it happens to be around the holidays when we're recording this and we're sitting in your living room for this occasion mm -hmm. and there is a giant Christmas tree here. Did you have a Christmas tree as a child growing up in your house? Not only did I, we always had a Christmas tree, but my wife grew up in a equally non-observant Jewish family in Scarsdale. They were, the distinction was they were German Jewish as opposed to Eastern European, which used to mean a lot, doesn't mean anything anymore. And so we always had a Christmas tree and my favorite story about this consisted of, we have an annual holiday party, which my father invited both social friends and business associates. And one of the business associates who came, who'd never been to our house before, if I, as I recall, looked and saw this about 10 foot tall Christmas tree in the front hall, beautifully decorated. And he said, knowing my father to be nominally Jewish, said, uh, Jack, uh, I didn't know you celebrated Christmas. My father said, not celebrate Christmas? Of course I celebrate Christmas. I'm a retailer. <laughs> so that was, that was his view of Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and as children, did you go to a synagogue, but also to a church or no. neither or? No, we went to, for about three or four years, maybe running ultra reform Sunday school. It hmm. was right. So yeah, I, lear I learned the basic. A mixture of kids from all religions or? No, no, a, Jew a, a, a reformed Jewish Sunday, oh, see, Sunday school. Uh -huh. But the fact that it was a Sunday school, not a Saturday school, told you that it was on the other side of the fence of orthodoxy versus super reform. And uh, you ha didn't have a bar mitzvah and your sister didn't have a bat mitzvah? And I tell people in that question, I said the question never arose. Uh -huh. It was never, it was just wasn't part of, the, of our way of looking at the world. We, we were, I think the way I put it is I, I am a cultural and historical Jew. I'm not a religious Jew, right? And I am fascinated by and an endless student of the history of the Holocaust, of anti-Semitism, of, of, of the social issues involved, and it still, it still fascinates me. And I also am so pleased to find that my daughter's generation, these distinctions essentially don't exist. Right. And uh, she- My too, I have yeah, a daughter, obviously. Right. And she, You're... when she recently pledged Kappa Kappa Gamma as a sorority, I said to her, Daisy, you do know that in my day, that was a Gentile sorority. She said, what's that? Really? Yeah, she didn't know. Because that. these days, my daughter was at University of Michigan, and there are Jewish fraternities and sororities. and, and Well, University of Michigan, probably like USC, has a very large Jewish minority there. It attracts a lot of people from the East Coast. Right. Michigan is their number one choice other than Ivy League. And same, same with USC in California. But the fact that it's not, it's not an issue among the kids. And then I, so I, I actually took the trouble to look at the, the, the photograph of her entering class at the sorority. And I would say about a quarter of them had noticeably Jewish names. About another quarter were, were Asian. 
and the rest were your, your basic. And one was a Smith. One, and one was flying under the radar named <laughs> Smith, yeah. <laughs> but there was also, the rest were the basic garden variety, Pasadena wasp, blonde and, and beautiful, yeah. But not to put too fine a point on it, your parents weren't trying to pass, they just oh, celebrated. no, no, no. They weren't not only were ashamed, they, not, they weren't self-hating Jews, no, right? No, they, no, My because, well, my grandfather was one of the first openly Jewish graduates of the Naval Academy in 1907. He was the first person to go from, from the state of Utah. He was born in Salt Lake City. So someone said, wait a minute, you're from Salt Lake City, you're named Smith and you're Jewish? How did that work out? <laughs> That's a sitcom. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, my father explained it to me very, very well when I was maybe 13, I think I was already in high school. He said, look, I grew up in Southern California and Hawaii. Well, my father was a na career naval officer stationed there. My last name was Smith, and I have, I'm blonde-haired and blue-eyed. I could have dropped my Jewish identity at any time if I'd wanted to, as his older brother did. His older brother went by various stages from you know, uh, Unitarian to Presbyterian to High Church of England now. <laughs> uh, he said, but I, there's one reason why I could never do that. He said, Adolf Hitler. He said, no self-respecting person could ever deny they were Jewish after Hitler. Right. Made a great impression of me at age 13. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my father was a man who was not very, very uh, ethical on small things, but he was, on the big stuff he was. He was very much so. And, uh, so anyway, today I want to talk about money. Well, since we are, let me take one quick pivot. Since we're sitting in the shadow of a 12-foot, let's say, Christmas tree here, amuse the people listening around the country and tell them what a 12-foot Christmas tree in Manhattan goes for. I will amuse all the men in the audience by saying, I don't know, my wife bought it and picked it out, chose it, decorated it, and did all the work, and I said, oh, how nice, dear. Okay, <laughs> so, great. Right, right. But we're not However, looking at 50 I, bucks here. We're looking at No, like, we're looking at probably 250. Three, 300, yeah, yeah, I was going to yeah, say yeah. 350. But she used to get it from a florist, and they, they were just crazily expensive until <laughs> I pointed that out to her. A florist on Madison Avenue. I said, no, no, there's lots. Wait till You're I still making up. payments on one of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did. One, the guy talked, the florist talked us into changing our Christmas tree stand to a, a stand that he wanted us to buy for some reason. And Terry and I were downstairs in the basement, at the bedroom about two in the morning when all of a sudden the most horrendous crash oh, we hear. No. And it, he put it in an insufficiently substantial stand. The whole thing crashed with ornaments collected by my wife over years and years, so. He's uh, fired. Well, we went to somebody else after that, although he, he literally objected to refunding us the money for the tree. What? So we insisted. Yeah. Okay, so you've known a great many wealthy people. I've known a great many wealthy people, and I'm a sort of, I think, a self-taught expert on how people spend money. I'm not as good on how people make money, <laughs> but I've been around that a lot too. And uh, as I think I've mentioned earlier, when George Soros decided to stop being a stockbroker on, on Wall Street at where he'd been the company I worked for, he'd been our stockbroker and we, he earned money and commissions from us. I was so impressed with how brilliant he was that I asked him, could I join you and his then junior partner, Jim Rogers, and be your third junior-est partner? And I think he politely pretended to consider it for a week or two before saying no. <laughs> 
now segue to 15 years later, I'm now very happily successful, maybe 12 years later, at an executive position at Warner, and I have arranged a meeting for George Soros to come up and meet Steve Ross with the hope that he might consider investing in Warner. He and Ross did not get along from the get-go. Ross, he didn't was, wait a week politely. And no, no. Well, well, no, um, Steve, I could always tell whether he liked a guest or not. Did he walk him to the elevator or her? Uh, that, that was his tell. That the tell. If he walked you to the elevator, you were okay. If he said, "So nice to see you. Hope to see you again. Goodbye." That was. Now, we've heard a lot of great things about Steve Ross in this podcast series, and I wonder what was it about George Soros that he didn't like? No, it was what George Soros didn't like about him. Oh, oh, I misunderstood. No, no, it's okay. There's no reason I hadn't revealed that fact. George Soros saw that he was a hype artist. He was, he was trying to sell George Soros. You don't sell George Soros. You just present the facts and let him make up his own mind. And Steve had that, that side of him which was sometimes, I would call it a lack of subtlety. He was very, 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 very smart and very wise about dealing with people, but not, but not always. Like, were we looking for a big amount of money from George Soros? No, to, we were looking for him to go out and buy our stock and put a lot of it away and push the price of the stock up. Then. Not to avoid a, the Time Warner, oh, anything year, like this that. Is, this, this, is, is ten, this is ten years, ten years before that. Right, yeah, yeah. and not to buy any specific, not to acquire anything specific. No, no, no. just become a major yeah, stock, right, yeah. stock. And of course. I was impressing my boss, Steve Ross. Because you could deliver George Soros. The fact that I could get him to walk into the office and, and sit down with him. Right. But anyway, so after the meeting with Steve and, and George Soros, I, I walked George to the elevator because Steve had told, could tell there hadn't been a meeting of the minds. Uh, and I said, you know, George, I'm very happy. I love Warner. I love Steve Ross. I love what I'm doing. But it does occur to me that if you had taken me in, they started the fund with $6 million. It's, it went right later to 80 billion, something wow. like that. I said, if you'd taken me in, you know, while, while I would have been a very junior partner, you would have had to divide it three ways, not two ways, and you'd have less money to <laughs> He said, Roger, that's not the problem. The problem is if you joined us, we'd have less money to, to divide. I said, George, that's cruel. <laughs> what was the Soros secret sauce that got him from 6 million to 80 billion? What did he look for in a company? He looked for, he was, he was more focused on industries. He would find an industry he believed in and that he would, that preferably one where he could be a contrarian. He was a big believer in coal and everyone's saying, oh, they're getting rid of coal. Well, yeah. coal was a very good investment for years. And a lot of times, uh, I mean, one of the most successful investments that I ever promoted and had my firm and my fund make when I was managing money on Wall Street was shortly after the, the, the government passed a law forbidding ethyl to be in gasoline. You had to get rid of it. High test or whatever uh, right. it was the, called the, ethyl. You'd, you'd have to yeah. do something else. You had to get rid of the ethyl additive. Well, there was one company that made it called the Ethyl Corp. Predictably, its stock plunged on the news. And I don't remember who, some broke, some smart broker said, buy the stock. I said, oh, will you? He said, no. They, he said, 98% of American cars on the road today require ethyl. 
in 10 years, it'll be down to 50%. In 20 years, it'll be down to zero. But during that time, they will make a shitload of money because no one else is going to go in the ethyl business. It's clearly a dying business. And they will have total pricing freedom, which was a... 100% market share. 100, right. And there's a very, very savvy Hollywood agent once told me, and it applies to investments too, be in with the outs. <laughs> the outs come back in. And they remember who returned their phone calls when they had just been fired, et cetera. So he said, make those friendships. And I don't mean to sound like it was all, always about a cynical yeah. ploy. I tried to mostly ingratiate myself with people I already liked. I didn't work that hard on people I instinctively dislike. I That's a basic reworking of be nice to the people on the way up because you're going to see them on the, on the way down. Well, this is not, be nice to the people on the way down because they, they're going to come back up <laughs> is really the way to put it. <laughs> not all of them, right. but, but the odds are good. And, and I know this for myself as having been from a high job to all of a sudden looking for a job. I remember the people who instantly returned my phone calls when I was no longer in a position to necessarily do them a favor. Now, just as a quick aside, and I'm only curious, there is still high-test gasoline. In fact, Sunoco sells not, a, a thing. It's not but, ethyl. But it's not ethyl. It's not ethyl, whatever ethyl right. was in the gas, ethyl that's gone. Ethyl was a specific chemical compound. I see. Which that the, was dirty Which or the was... ethyl corporation had a monopoly on making. And when it was required, it reduced the knock ratio of the gasoline, right. et cetera. And so when it was required if you couldn't call your gasoline high test or premium right. without ethyl. Well, that, of course, disappeared over time. But there's been other cases I've found where you invest in something. So you guys bought into ethyl? Yes. Your yeah. firm? Right, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it did very, very well. But it had the, the crucial ingredient. Yes, they had a captive market. Yes, they had pricing freedom. But then you have to do something with the money you make to replace a dying business. There was a point that some people were recommending AOL and everybody knew dial-up was a dying business, but they still had 60 million subscribers who they could... Monetize somehow. Soak, I think was the word I was looking for. So the process of identifying... I was fascinated from the moment I went to work on Wall Street by watching how people approach decision-making as to what companies or what industries to invest in. It wasn't about hot stocks and people whispering a tip, <laughs> we heard about this. You really looked in to see what was something, first of all, that you could believe was going to happen. And two, preferably, not everybody else had already seen it. I mean, right now, if you say to somebody, oh, NVIDIA is in very good position, you'd say, yeah, I know it's up 150% right. last year. Yeah. Uh, so you have to find something a little bit ahead of the curve. Not too far ahead of the curve, because then you can sometimes wait years for what you thought was going to happen for it to happen. I also learned an early lesson in my own personal investing. My landlord on the west side of New York, who owned a townhouse that I had the upper half and he had the lower half, he owned the thing, was the head of a company called American Bioculture, a little over-the-counter stock, which he was convinced had a formula for an additive to irrigation water that increased crop yields, reduced pollution. It was just, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. And an enzyme or? A, an en or some kind of a, chemical uh -huh. enzyme, yeah. Uh, and they had a patent on it and so forth. Well, I not only 
put what money I had, which was then about $10,000 into it. I borrowed another 10000 on top of that. We uh -oh. could leverage things in those days, two to one. And pretty soon, my $20,000 was worth $250,000. Oh, oh. So yeah, I thought, see. oh, I've done the hard part. However, I, wanted, I had to think about, do I stay with this company or I look for something else? And I had a very good friend who only died a few years ago, a very smart man who made three or four hundred million dollars. And he told me, Tropicana orange juice. I said, Tropicana, why? He said, they, they know their product. They do a great job. They're great marketers. I said, look, one company's going to solve the pollution and crop yield problems of the world. The other one knows how to squeeze oranges, yeah. which is a, thinks a more exciting thing. Let me tell you, Tropicana went up eightfold and, and American bioculture disappeared. So that is. So you got into Tropicana? No. Oh. I was far too smart for that. Yeah. Um, this is I, why we're talking today about other rich people. Yes. And I would say that if someone said, what do you think the greatest mistake you've ever made in investing has been? I would say, listening to myself. I said, I've just been frequently wrong because I get passionate and enthusiastic about something. Whereas George Soros, who I've watched the process, he is cold-eyed. There's not a drop of emotion and it's not, he's not out to prove he's right. He's just out to get abominably rich and obviously has done so. We like listening to Roger because uh, that's what this podcast is all about. We're talking about rich people and we will talk more about them in the next episode. If none of his stories were about you, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Who the fuck is Roger Smith is recorded in an undisclosed bunker somewhere on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. All opinions are Mr. Smith's own, but everything he says happened because he was there. Bill Bergoli's our producer and editor. I'm Bill McCuddy. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, my name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric acid.